ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name's Matt Brand. Welcome to the program. Today we join a few Territory farmers to check out the latest version of a mango-picking robot, which apparently is getting quicker at doing the job. Also today, it's been about a year since Australia signed a trade agreement with India, and it looks like one fruit in particular is about to be shipped that way in big, big volumes. I wonder if you can guess what fruit that is. And before 1.30, a trip across the border to the Ord Irrigation Scheme, where it looks like chia is making a comeback. You know, the Ord Valley chia is always the highest quality in the world. It's got consistent yields because of irrigation. Customers have called us again and said, can we get chia from the Ord? Can we get chia company chia because it's high quality? And they're less sensitive to the pricing discussion. Chia making a comeback and plenty more on today's Country Hour. Hope you can stick around. We are broadcasting across the Territory on the ABC, streaming online, and g'day there if you are tuning in via the podcast. Now, first up today, can you smell it? It is harvest time in the Territory for what is regarded as the world's smelliest fruit. I'm talking about durians. This large, spiky fruit has got a smell that is so offensive that in some countries it's banned on public transport and it's banned in hotels. Have you tried a durian yet? (laughs) Some people love them, absolutely love them, and it turns out some native Australian animals are also developing a taste for this unique fruit. More on that in a moment, but first let's head into the paddock and learn more about how the Territory's durian season is coming along. G'day, I'm Han from Lemus Lagoon. It's uh, 2023 and we started our durian season in late November. I can smell it, Han. I can smell these durians. We're standing in front of a trailer packed with your durians. Tell us what's in front of us here. Oh, we got some spiky fruit that smells awesome when you walk up to the shed. This <laughs> morning was very fragrant. I could smell it from a mile away. And when you get closer, uh, the, the salvation starts with the mouth starts drooling. How do you describe the smell? Uh, it is a, uh, it's a mixture of really strong garlic and, and, you know, a bit of old socks, but it's a very fragrantly pleasant smell for me. Some people say well, I have a little bit of sulfuric smell, like, like maybe a leaking gas tap from a leaking gas bottle. <laughs> and, and, yeah, so it, it's, it's, for us and most Asian, it's, it's a fragrance that we, we, we would, you know, kind of linger towards and, you know, trace towards really quickly. It makes for a pungent shed, that is for sure. And these are some of your first for the season. They are tree ripened. Yep. How is your season shaping up this year? It started off looking great with great flowering this year in, in Jan- July. Um, and then when the weather got a little bit warmer than expected, a lot of it dropped. But we thought we didn't have much. However, we, uh, when, when the time grew and the fruit started getting bigger, we looked up. There was a lot more than we expected. So... We are looking at close to maybe 15 tonnes, so more than last year. Um, not, as, not as large as our big one, but yeah, we're looking pretty good. 
and this current stage we're still scratching ahead because some trees are flowering again in late November. So and will that um, mean a second harvest for you? We think so. Yeah. We're thinking maybe harvest in mid to late January. However, we're not too sure yet on the quality of the fruit. We'll find it when it gets there. Yeah. And we've got one massive durian here. We weighed it earlier. Mm-hmm. Over three kilos. 3.8, I believe. 3.8. Yeah. Do they get much bigger than that? They do in, in other countries. I think the largest we've ever had was about four and a half. Uh, but yeah, this was a, a big boy or girl. <laughs> uh, she smells great and yeah I just picked it up this morning I just drove past her and I was like "Woo, she's big <laughs> and I went down and picked it up and tagged her and where are all these durians off to? Uh, most of it will be going to Sydney and Melbourne in, on Wednesday onwards yeah yep and what are prices like for you? so our premium premium grade durian is sitting at about $32 a kilo wholesale so mark up anything beyond that is probably about close to $40 $45 at the retail and our uh, normal durian is sitting closer towards about 20 to $22 a kilo. Okay. And just looking at these durians, I mean, they are big. They are so spiky and, and that famous smell. So I'm sort of just amazed at how some of them have clearly been attacked by birds. Yeah. What, what bird is getting through this ginormous spiky fruit? Uh, well, we're have, getting something a little bit more um, cockatoos and corellas. Right. Mostly cockatoos are, are, are attacking these. They just like to attack a particular variety, I guess, because it's more fragrant and a different smell, smell than, than the, uh, the, the other durians. And unfortunately, it is our premium grade one that we, <laughs> that, we, that, we, that we try to sell and promote. We're getting a fair more of that being attacked. Your best variety is, is the one they're targeting. Correct. They've developed a taste for your... Ch- yes, no, nothing else. Just that variety I've noticed, and unfortunately oh it's a bit annoying. How are they doing it? That's what gets me, because if they I was ha- a bird, I wouldn't want to sit on that fruit. It's so spiky. They have, I guess, steel off teeth, steel off mouth to bite through it. They are pretty ingenious, and yeah, they, they, they like to nibble yep. here and there, and unfortunately they don't want to finish all fruit. Yep. Has this always been a problem, or just something no, that's... Just slightly recently it's picked up. We noticed a little bit more last year. Um, and then this year again more. I guess because we had a farm down there that used to grow a lot of other melons, and they used to keep all the cockatoos and corellas down there during this time of the year, so we didn't have much of a bird problem. Once they switched that over, melon farm's becoming a croc farm now. Yes, so, so unfortunately, <laughs> cockatoos and corellas don't like crocodiles, so 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 they decided to uh, immigrate down to uh, neighbouring farms. And unfortunately, if they some starting to liking taste to durian when there's nothing else left to eat. Wow. Yeah, because your mango season's done. Yes, our mango season done last week, and we're over it. We're so happy. That's very unusual for us because we're generally juggling mangoes and durian at the same time. Alrighty then. I think we've reached that time. This is this is this is a story I get to do about once a year. Yep. I open up a durian. And, and let's see how long Matt survives without gagging. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, let's go get one. Hang on a second. There's a real secret, isn't there, to, to cutting them open? Yeah, there is. Uh, so there are dedicated lines here. They're like fault lines. So you can actually use a pair of knife, secateurs, or anything just to crack it open. Okay. So the way we do is I would like to go from the, the, the bottom. There's a top on top here. And we just put the pair of secateurs here in. And you just twist your knives. Sometimes it's pretty easy. Sometimes a lot harder than you expected. So we'll grab it here. You see how soft it is? It's delicate. Can you grab a little segment, and I guess 
tell our audience what makes durian special and what you look for in terms of flavour in durian. Okay. So for durian, we, we, generally it is quite soft. We, that's what you want to do, it's very soft. It also uh, has to be a very strong pungent smell. Like, and it's more of a, uh, like a uh, garlicky smell, oniony smell. So once we consume it, we eat it, uh, it, it, is, it is very... Um, I'll grab a piece too. Ooh, yep, yep here we go. So you eat it, <laughs> and it's, um, yeah, so it has that, that really oniony taste, really onion skin flavour. Um, it's got a sulfuric taste. And, and smooth. Smooth. It's very smooth, and it's very sweet. It's, the taste is very different to the smell. Yeah. It's a lot more like a custardy... Dessert. That's why they dessert, put it in yeah. ice cream. Yes. But funny part, they also put it in hot pots. And, <laughs> and, and pizzas in some Asian countries. No, one, hey, no wonder the cockatoos. They've, they've worked it out. They, they're picking the most expensive fruit in town. <laughs> move over mangoes, move over rambutans and... Water apples, it's durian. <laughs> Always good to see you, Han. Thanks for sharing some durian. No, thanks. We'll finish this one off here. Yeah, there. <laughs> Han Chung, see ya. Out there at Lambles Lagoon, it's the largest durian farm in the nation, and it's harvest time. Can you smell it? I brought back some segments of durian to share with producer Dan the Man Fitzgerald. He's been thanking me every day. He's a changed man, Dan. It is 20 to 1 and you are tuned into the Country Hour. If you were listening to the program yesterday, you would have heard the conversation with the boss of the Australian Meat Industry Council, Patrick Hutchison. Uh, He was on the radio talking about some workers in abattoirs who have been striking this week. Uh, There was strikes on yesterday. There's some more due tomorrow. And he was not impressed. You know, we're very upset of being used as a bargaining chip with the federal government by the CPSU. Never spoke to us, never engaged with the industry that they're going to impact. Frankly, you know, this is unions gone wild. Unions gone wild, according to Patrick Hutchinson. Well, up next on the Country Hour, you'll get to hear from the union. Hello, my name's Tom Farrar. I'm a ranger over on Groot Island. And you're listening to The Country Hour. Matt Brand with you this afternoon. It's 16 to 1 on a Thursday lunchtime. Government vets and meat inspectors walked out of abattoirs yesterday, striking for about an hour in a bid to get better pay conditions. The Australian Meat Industry Council, which represents meat processors, it wasn't that impressed by this action, saying meatworks were collateral damage in the negotiations between unions and the federal government. You know, we're very upset of being used as a bargaining chip with the federal government by the CPSU. Never spoke to us, never engaged with the industry that they're going to impact. Frankly, you know, this is unions gone wild. That was Patrick Hutchinson from AMIC on the Country Hour yesterday. Well, CPSU National Secretary Melissa Donnelly says this strike action is about getting better long-term conditions for workers, which in turn will benefit the red meat industry. 
Well, we've been in negotiations with the federal government since the beginning of the year. Uh, we don't come to this industrial action lightly. We come to it after months and months of negotiations. And our members who work for the department in, in abattoirs and in the meat industry want a fair deal on pay. Uh, we all know there are really significant cost of living pressures and employees working for the Department of Agriculture are the same. And we think if the meat industry has concerns about the industrial action, they should direct those to the government and the department. Do you think it's fair that their operations are impacted by these uh, one-hour strikes? I think the reality is the pay rates and the conditions that are on offer uh, for Department of Agriculture workers working in abattoirs already have the potential um, to impact operations. We know that the department is ne nearly permanently advertising these roles uh, because at the pay rate and the conditions that are on offer right now, they're struggling to fill them. We don't want a long-term problem. We want a solution here that provides a long-term solution for the industry and these workers. And that means being more attractive in, in terms of their pay conditions so they can attract and retain employees. Do you think that message is getting through by taking this kind of industrial action? I mean, AMIC says that a one-hour strike delays operations for six hours. It could take days to get through a backlog of animals that poses animal welfare issues. Do you think that by taking this action, the federal government is feeling that impact and it will force them to come to the table to negotiate further? I think industrial action is always one of those options that workers don't come to lightly. And it is absolutely the case um, in this circumstance as well that our members have not come to this lightly. They've come to it after months and months of negotiations. And there are a range of pay and allowance issues, allowance issues specific for these workers that, uh, that uh, are not yet resolved. So we would be hopeful, as I'm sure industry will be hopeful, that the government does come to the party and we can resolve this as quickly as possible because it's in the long-term interests of the industry industry, that we have a solution that means that uh, we can attract and retain these workers for the long term. Do you have other action that is an option? Amic was saying that why can't these negotiations be done in another way without taking a third party industry hostage? Well, we, we have absolutely um, been undertaking these negotiations in other ways. We have been doing, uh, been engaged in nearly weekly negotiations since March. So we're not racing to industrial action. Uh, we have come to this position and our members have come to this position thoughtfully and after a long uh, period of negotiations. So we continue um, to work hard to make sure there's a resolution here. Uh, but that involves a, an outcome that delivers for these workers, both in terms of pay and allowances. Has the government contacted you to say, right, we need to, we need to negotiate again, this is having an impact? We continue to be in discussions with the relevant government agency leading the negotiations as well as the government. Uh, this isn't um, an isolated uh, issue just in, just in the meat industry uh, workforce. Uh, there are other action going on. We're not targeting uh, the meat industry. It is a broader issue right across the public sector. And we will continue those negotiations and I very, uh, you know, want to uh, see this resolved as quickly as possible. And will strike action continue until then? Look, that'll be a matter we continue to discuss with our delegates and members um, in this workforce about what, uh, what their thoughts are in terms of further action and what might be needed. It also is dependent on how the Department of Agriculture responds to a range of outstanding claims we've put forward um, that go to allowances and specific issues for these workers. That's Melissa Donnelly from the Community and Public Sector Union, the CPSU, speaking to Lydia Burton. So there'll strike action 
yesterday. I understand there's more due tomorrow. In a statement to the Country Hour, a spokesperson for the Federal Department of Ag said it's actively engaging in good faith negotiations and working closely with key stakeholders of the meat industry and individual export meat establishments to minimise the impact of the industrial action. G'day, my name is Heather Smythe. I'm a sensory scientist and flavour specialist and my job is to make food more delicious. And you're listening to the Country Hour. <laughs> and on the topic of flavour, have you tried a durian before? The durian season in the Northern Territory has started. <laughs> Got a text here from Judith in Malak. This is on 0487 1057. Judith says, Matt, durian brings back memories. While living in Malaysia many years ago, I was told about this fruit, so I was keen to try it. I bought one from the market, and I'm lucky, says Judith, that I don't have a sense of smell. <laughs> Uh, When I got home, my housekeeper refused to let me come inside with it, but my neighbours were away, so their housekeeper let me try it out. I had it on bread, and it tasted a bit like between a custard apple and condensed milk, which was nice. The boot of my car stunk for weeks, and the school always sent notes home to say, this is banned from coming to school, (laughs) says Judith there in Malak. (laughs) I'm pleased that story brought back memories of time in Malaysia. Uh, the Sia family actually are originally from Malaysia. They planted those durian trees more than 30 years ago, and it's now the biggest farm of its type in the nation. It's a fruit that is growing in popularity in Australia. It's not for everyone. That's granted. It's not for everyone, but demand for it is on the rise. And I still, I still can't believe that white cockatoos have developed a taste for those durians. I just still can't believe they managed to get inside a durian. Like, I know a cocky's got a pretty strong beak, but if you've seen a durian, huge, spiky, tough, and yet the cockies, as we heard, are getting into them. Uh, If you missed that story at the start of the Country Hour, it'll be on our podcast later on this afternoon. Hello, my name's Al from Humpty Doo Sunflowers, and you're listening to The Country Hour. Good news for Aussie avocado growers. The Hass variety has been given official approval to be exported to India following a series of trial shipments that happened earlier in the year. Avocados Australia says it's great news because Australia has got a lot of avocados to sell. Let's face it, Australia is awash with avocados and the current production, it's huge and is expected to grow by 20% in the next three years. Chief Executive of Avocados Australia, John Tyre, says new export markets are very important for this industry. We've been working to try and build these export markets as fast as we can. We've seen massive increases in our exports of Australian avocados, albeit off a pretty small base. But our uh, our exports for the 12 months till now is uh, almost 14,000 tonnes. A few years ago, only a few years ago, just prior to COVID, we were doing about two or 3,000 tonnes per annum. So we've really ramped things up. But, you know, there's plenty of fruit to go around. There'll still be a lot of fruit uh, marketed domestically. You know, the Australian market is a, is a very good market and we'll continue to supply 
Australian customers and we really need the domestic market to grow significantly as well. We're expecting our crop supply to be about 170,000 tonnes by 2026. Uh, it's currently around 130 to 140,000 tonnes, so there's still quite a lot of growth coming over the next few years with new trees coming online into production. So, you know, we'll be pushing very hard for new export markets, building the export markets we've got, and certainly building and, uh, and developing further the Australian domestic market. Do you have concerns, though, about the market domestically here? Because they've, they're facing some significant challenges when it comes to the, the price that they're getting back for their product. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's tough. Uh, there's no doubt it's tough at the moment. I guess one thing with the, the lower pricing that we're seeing domestically is that it's bringing new customers into the, the category, new buyers. And so hopefully, you know, over time, as we can strengthen demand further domestically, we'll see those those new consumers stick with the category. Because at the moment, we've got about sort of 75 to 80% household penetration. We've got, you know, a fairly small group of absolute avocado lovers. So we need to get more people consuming avocados more frequently. And personally, I think there's still a lot of room to grow in the domestic market, but it does take time. You can't do it over, overnight. We've seen significant increases in domestic consumer demand over the last 10 years. So we know it's possible. We know there's room to grow and we just need to keep pushing to increase that consumption domestically. As John Tyus, Chief Executive of Avocados Australia, speaking to Tina Quinn, Aussie Avocados, heading off to India. Have you seen the ads with Brett Lee? Wild. <laughs> A real touch of Bollywood in all of that. But if it works for the avocado industry, bring it on. It's five to one. You are tuned into the Country Hour. Did you know that a two-day conference focused on bush foods is happening in Darwin this week? It kicked off this morning. Raylene Brown is there. She works in the bush foods industry around Alice Springs and is also the chair of the First Nations Bush Foods Botanicals Alliance. She says this conference in Darwin is happening at a really exciting time for the industry. It's a national conference. It's a, a focus on Indigenous participation in the industry. Um, I just think we really should have included the Indigenous women who have been the mainstays of the supply chain for all these years to help them to build their capacity and their understanding in the industry. So we're working really hard around IP and this is what we're going to be discussing at the conference. And IP is? Intellectual property and food sovereignty and provenance and story. So That's a big issue to come out of the conference. What else will it cover? Um, it'll also talk about the, the process and explain to Indigenous people, you know, when because um, a lot of the times they don't get to see what happens with their product. They harvest it and it goes through traders, it ends up in Sydney, Melbourne, it even ends up in Asia. And um, what we will have is a really interactive space where we can um, show exactly all the processes that go, you have to go through to get a product to market. Um, and whether or not, for me, I think it's important for in our regional areas, especially where Indigenous people are the suppliers, that we have our own um, food innovation hubs where we can do the research ourselves, we can have the opportunity to create our own products, manufacturing, 
getting our young Indigenous people involved in food science, in agriculture, in tourism, in all the ways that we can devalue our bush foods, but have a lot of the possible and positive changes in our regional areas where we're really struggling to get our young people involved or get them, get them employed. And for me, for the most of the time that I've been working with young people, they have a really big interest in cu- working on country and working with their plants and their bush foods. They've already got an interest there. So for me, it's just a no-brainer <laughs> to really try to, in the Northern Territory to try and support this whole push. Yeah, and like you were saying, there's huge potential for it. It seems to be a win-win situation for the industry and for communities but what are the challenges stopping that from happening already? Um, I think it's like having a space where we can where we can work on this where we can really um, open up and that's what I'm trying to do I'm also working on trying to get a space here where we can I've already been working um, we, at a national level with this, uh, the curriculum and getting some units of bush food study invo- in, included in curriculum. So maybe if you're studying um, land care or being a ranger, there are units that you can include now of bush foods um, inside of your study um, and in hospitality as well, so being a part of that. But for me, we just need this a space where we can really concentrate and make a concerted effort to include Indigenous people and value their knowledge and value their contribution and also look at the future um, participation around the youth and that. I think that's a really important part for me. I can't go without, in my lifetime, without transferring all that I know in, my, in the part that I contribute to, to transfer that onto the next generation who I hold in high regard are those women, women out on country who have been the, the backbone uh, of, of the growth of this industry. Without, there's no bush foods without the people and um, that's something that I live by. That's Raylene Brown from Kungus Ken Cook speaking to Victoria Ellis. So this National Sovereign Food and Botanical Symposium, it's on in Darwin this week. You'll be hearing more stories from this bush foods conference on tomorrow's Country Hour. G'day, it's Jeff Tucker from the Sydney Fish Market and you're listening to The Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. In a moment, we'll be checking out that mango-picking robot, which apparently keeps getting better and quicker. What do farmers think of it? You'll find out soon. And a trip across the border to the Ord Irrigation Scheme where it seems growers are once again planting some chia. You know, the Ord Valley Chia is always the highest quality in the world. It's got consistent yields because of the irrigation. It, customers have called us again and said, can we get chia from the Ord? Can we get chia company chia because it's high quality? And they're less sensitive to the pricing discussion. Yeah, chia in the Ord was all the rage about a decade ago. And then it sort of fell off the radar as South America started planting heaps of it. But... Sounds like the orders are coming back for Ord Chia. You'll learn more about this before 1.30. Let's go to the Weather Bureau. Billy Lynch is there this afternoon. Billy, much rainfall to report in the last 24 hours? Oh, g'day, Matt. Yeah, look, there's been a little bit, um, mainly across the daily district where we've seen sort of anywhere from five millimetres up to 25 millimetres. Um, so East Arm came in with 25 millimetres with some of yesterday afternoon's thunderstorm activity. 
we had one isolated fall to 60 millimetres. That was at Adelaide River on the Arnhem Highway. Um, and then we've also had some storms across southern NT since yesterday afternoon. They persisted throughout the night. They're still going. It was looking like we weren't going to get anything in any of the rain gauges, which was I was feeling a bit disappointed. But um, mm. thankfully, Wataka's come in. They've reported seven millimetres. So thank you, Wataka. Yeah, right. And um, what's your understanding of lightning associated with that system? Hopefully there wasn't. Oh, yeah. Hopefully there wasn't too much. Well, there's definitely been lightning out <laughs> there. There's no yeah. doubt about it. Um, but I mean, these thunderstorms—they're merging into like wet thunderstorms rather than the dry lightning type okay. of thunderstorms. Yeah. Um, I mean, no doubt the the landscape's still quite dry, and there will be the risk of you know wildfires being started up. But these thunderstorms are going to be dropping rain at the same time. And um, as yeah, as we move through the next few days. The, uh, the tropical humidity is going to start building up, so we might even get some, some half-decent rainfall totals with some of these thunderstorms. On fire, there once again is an extreme fire danger warning in place for the Barclay North. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, bit of a surprising one because we don't normally get fire weather warnings in the northerlies, but um, we do have a fire weather warning today. That's, um, I mean, it's very hot temperatures you know hitting the low 40s across the northern Barkley and this morning well throughout the day winds could be a little fresh and gusty so yes Barkley North extreme fire danger for today um, I'm pretty sure there's a fire ban for the same region but tomorrow the humidity is going to increase the cloud cover is going to increase so it should be a little less hot a little more humid and a little less windy um, to reduce the fire dangers. So you're expecting that warning to be reasonably short-lived? Yeah, my expectation is we won't need one tomorrow. Okay, okay. Um, well, I've just looked at the Darwin radar and there's a little bit of colour off the coast uh, west of Dundee Beach there. This afternoon, can, can top-enders expect much? Yeah, I think it's going to sort of play out much like it has the last few days. So as we start to move into the afternoon now, um, we will start to see some showers and a few thunderstorms develop uh, you know between Darwin and, and Catherine mainly um, but as it has also been the last few days it's quite hit and miss um, but yeah they'll be they'll be developing this afternoon um, and also as we move into the afternoon we're expecting um, really a large parts of the territory so apart from maybe the Lassiter district um, or even the Lassiter has a chance of seeing some thunderstorms, but uh, it's mainly going to be north and east of Alice Springs for the remainder of this afternoon. Beauty. And I've got a question here from Oogie. says, question for the Bureau. Does the cloud that reappears all the time in the harbour near East Arm have a name like Hector there on the Tiwi Islands? Says Oogie. <laughs> um, we don't have a name for it, no, so I guess it's, it's up for nomination. <laughs> Uh, if it's the cloud I'm thinking of, Oogie, I think I've seen it dubbed the Impex cloud. But we can talk about that on another day. Billy Lynch, anything else we need to be aware of? Um, not today, Matt. Um, but I think the next few days, the, the risk of severe thunderstorms is going to increase um, across parts of the Territory. So that's just something else that we can talk about. Bring on the rain. Yeah, OK. Have a lovely afternoon. No worries. Thank you, Matt. That's Billy Lynch at the Weather Bureau. Just looking at the NAFI website.
There's still a lot of fire in that North Tanami region and a lot of cattle stations bordering it are working hard, it would seem, to keep it out of that cattle food. And to me, it seems like some dry lightning struck to the south of the Territory border, like some of that country around the Great Victoria Desert. There's just a lot of scattered fire there this afternoon, which makes you think some dry lightning has sort of gone through that country. It is 11 past one. Oogie wants to know what that cloud in the harbour's called. Maybe you have a different name for it. I've just seen it dubbed the Impex Cloud, but maybe it has another name. 0487 991057 is the text here at the Country Hour. Up next, let's go and check out a mango-picking robot. Last year, ABC Gives raised an amazing $1.5 million for Australians in need. This year, we're teaming up again with our charity partners to raise that amount and more to help people in your local community struggling to cope with rising living costs. There's big need out there, and Australians have big hearts and generous spirits. So join with us and help brighten your community. ABC Gives. Head to abc.net.au slash gives to donate today. Hi, my name's Philomena. I'm from Acacia Hills Mango Farm, and you're listening to The Country Hour. The Northern Territory's mango industry has long struggled to get enough workers. Let's face it, it's a tough job, isn't it? It's tough working outside, picking mangoes in the extreme build-up heat. It's a tough gig. And that's why the idea of a mango-picking robot has been so, so appealing to the industry. For several years now, there's been people working on this technology, and the latest prototype was on show this week at a mango farm near Catherine. Our reporter, Jan Kahoot, went along to see the auto harvester in action and check out some of its latest features. On the outskirts of Catherine, around 15 people involved in the mango industry have gathered to watch a mango-picking robot in action. When it's operating... This automated machine, with several arms like a spider, uses a combination of technologies to locate the mature mango on the tree, pick them, and once full, takes them back to the packing shed for processing. Watching on is Professor Kerry Walsh from CQ University, who's been involved in this project for years. He says the robot is getting quicker, but there's still room for improvement. What are our limitations? Our, our limitations at the moment, we can detect the fruit quite well. You know, that the, it, it's very good at detecting fruit. Um, the arm is now arriving at, at the right place at the right time. Um, but if there's a, a cluster of fruit, if there's several fruit all beside each other, the arm will grab one and knock others. So that, that is uh, you know, a limitation. It will suit some varieties better than others, you know, once they have less clustered um, fruit. But the other big thing this year, of course, is with the Nusiforos developing that harvest aid base. So before it was just the elevator with the arms going out, moving up and down. But that's only part of the story, obviously. You've got to pick those fruit up and take it on a conveyor and wash it and get it into the field bin. So that's happened this year. Um, and then the rest of this season, they'll be trying the two things together. And that will give a lot more 
confidence and numbers on the speed of, of movement. Um, it comes down to cost of, of production. Um, a typical you know, human picking operation might run around 12, 15 cents a kilogram. The moment you pick up a picking pole or step on a ladder, it's suddenly 20, 25, 30 cents a kilogram. You know, in a bad situation, you might be 50 cents a kilogram. So this machine system has to match what you can do with, with humans. So it's a, it's a cost thing, but it's also a human availability thing because often you can't get pickers. So. What, what are the potential risks of having robots? Potential risks of having robots? Uh, having people to service them. Right. Right. Quite a challenge, eh? Yeah, yeah. it's a different skill set, isn't it? I mean, it, you, um, you know, you don't do your own washing anymore. You've got a washing machine. You, you know, you don't. Everything's always removing labour, um, but it involves a new skill set, doesn't it, to keep it going. So you've got to evolve to, um, you've got to evolve your human resources to to deal with that. Hi, uh, my name is Teresa from NT Golden Produce. And my name's Danny. I'm also working at NT Golden Produce. So Teresa and I are working on our parents' farm, and in recent years we're trying to take on more, learn more. And that's why we're trying to get more involved in the community, just visit different events, network around, just see what's happening, like what new technology is coming out, such as auto harvesters, fruit mapping. It's all pretty exciting stuff. Do you think you're going to get a robot like this one in your farm? Do you see it happening? Uh, maybe down in the future, because we can see the benefits of where you could definitely use it, cut down labor, and just improve that cost efficiency side of things. But at the moment, there's still a lot of kinks that we'd like to see worked out. What kind of things? Uh, well, one of the big ones I would probably was like mango sap, because right now there's a lot of fruit clusters together. That sap, as weird as it sounds, mangoes can hurt you if left for a long time, and if not, they'll damage each other if they're like really close and that sap sprays onto the next fruit that one will then go down in price quality so there's definitely things like mango wash and other detergents that will help reduce uh, the severity of that effect but this would be the first type of machine that we'll see in picking again would you see your farm being fully automated one day I mean that'd be a good idea just you know cut down labour costs things are a lot more consistent but I think the industry in general would still be a far away from that. You still need that human element. That is Danny and Teresa from NT Golden Produce who were at the field day this week in Catherine checking out that mango-picking robot, kicking a few tyres, asking a few questions. Well done to Nisaforo Farm for putting on that field day. And so that robot, I assume, is out there this afternoon picking a few Calypso mangoes. It is 18 past one. You are tuned into the Country Hour. Up next, we're heading across the border to the oil irrigation scheme in the Kimberley. All kinds of crops are grown there in the Ord, but there's one that looks like it's making a bit of a comeback. Peter Brandy and the tune Kimberley Backroads. You are tuned into the Country Hour. We're broadcasting right across the Territory on the ABC. Now, the audio irrigation scheme in the Kimberley has seen plenty of crops come and go over the years. Crops like sugarcane, rice, there's a bunch of them. 
It's a region where growers are willing to have a crack at almost anything, and they're also just as willing to let it go if it's not working out. But when it comes to chia production, it appears that this health food crop is getting a second chance in the Ord, as Alice Marshall reports. Just under a decade ago, chia looked set to become the Ord Valley's next big thing. Coles had signed a contract to supply more than one million packets of black and white chia seeds grown in the East Kimberley to supermarkets across Australia. And the region's unique climate allowed growers to produce the then-touted superfood at consistently high yields and quality. And then farmers stopped planting it. The last time we grew chia was in 2017. This is Christian Blocker of Bothcamp Australia Farm, just out of Kununurra. The reason we stopped growing at the time was that the risk-reward wasn't there. So... uh, we didn't think we were getting paid for what it was costing us and what, what we were risking in the process of to grow the cheer. So the, the biggest risk with the cheer is that we get rain before harvest and then you know, if you've ever put a teaspoon of cheer in a glass of water and it all swells up, well, it does the same thing out in the paddock. So you can go from having 100% crop to 0% crop overnight with a big storm, which can happen this time of year. So it's not unheard of. So... Uh, We were, and with the rising cost of production, which we've actually accelerated since then, um, it wasn't wasn't worth the risk to grow anymore. And we had better options. John Voss is the founder of the Chair Company, which was influential in getting the crop established in the Kimberley nearly 20 years ago. He said the risk came down to what was happening overseas. In... um Mid-2000, like 2014, 15, there was a big oversupply from Latin America and um, so the prices dropped and it went below the value that we could grow it sustainably in the ord and, and service markets. What happened though, a couple of factors, there was increased demand and so we create a lot of demand, particularly in the North American market, on getting a lot of awareness around cheer. So uh, there was a lot of fast followers, a lot of production in South America happened. It was quite opportunistic, so growers... We're in the ord, we're irrigated, and um, we essentially grow it to the contracts and the markets we have. South American growers went in dry land, um, no inputs, and basically put in a lot of hectares, like two or 300,000 hectares in one year. Um, that consequently flooded the market, but it was interesting. Some of the drivers were not just economics. Some of those were also currency. So um, the countries that grow here in South America um, – their local currencies are struggling. Uh, you see now even Argentina, their their peso is worth like a, a million pesos is worth less than three thousand Aussie dollars. So they they are really keen to get their hands on US dollars. And Cheer is one of the products that have been able to do that. So it was less about sort of production economics, but actual getting their hands on US dollars. So yeah, we we still work in South America and source South American Cheer for our northern hemisphere markets. But um, in that time, we really struggled to get the economics to work out of the ore to compete with that. But there's been a recent change to this market. Look, it's really interesting where someone sees value in price. When we've, um, you know, the Ord Valley cheer is always the highest quality in the world. It's got consistent yields because of irrigation. It's got really consistent nutrition. It's We can trace it back to the paddock and we can guarantee uh, allergen-free. There's no, there's no wheat in the Ord, no soy, sesame, lupin. So we can essentially very confident of, of allergen-free products. So while uh, South American cheer came to the market substantially cheaper, like 
you know, more than half the price. Um, it was very hard to compete. Now that there's been some weather issues in South America, um, essentially the inverse of the effect of a La Nina in Australia, which is wet on the east coast of Australia, means it's dry in South America. So they've had a lot of um, drought and some frost issues, and therefore their production's been uh, compromised a fair bit. So that means customers have called us again and said, can we get cheer from the Ord? Can we get cheer company cheer because it's high quality? And they're less sensitive to the pricing discussion. It's bolstered Ord farmers like Christian Blocker to plant the crop for the first time since 2017. We want to see Australian cheer that you can buy in shops around Australia. Um, We don't want it to all be South American cheer. So, um, yeah, we decided to put some in again this year. It it grew well. We, We know we can grow it, but this year we're getting paid for the the effort and the risk that's involved with that. How many hectares did you put in this year compared to what you would have put in, say, in 2017 or maybe even in the years earlier, sort of when when it was booming, like maybe 2014, 2015? Only a fraction, so about 10%. So only only a small amount. Um, It's also having confidence to do it again, you know, knowing that that 27 year we knew we could grow it well but we haven't grown it for a long time um, and so risking rather risk a smaller area um, and we've shown this year again that it does grow well here which is nice and, you know, when you do risk that at say when you haven't grown something for a while um, so the the conditions have actually been really good for it this year um, and ended up with a good cheer crop. Is this an indication that consumers these days are more willing to pay for local and quality produce like cheer? Here's John Foss from the Chia Company again. Look, I like to say consumers are more conscious on quality and traceability and allergen management and a whole heap of things. I think what we've learned through the period is when there's a much cheaper alternative offered and on the shelf, consumers will buy it and they'll overlook provenance, country of origin, quality traits, and they just go, I've bought the cheapest. And that, you know, it sort of undermines some of the things that we built the business on, the fact that the highest quality, traceable, you know, uh, most sustainable production. So, yeah, and a lot of consumers, when they're interviewed and asked, they'll respond and say, we want all of those things and we value those things highly. How they behave when they get to the cash register is very different. And, um, you know, they will typically go to the to the lowest cost option. So that's, you know, that's realities of it. We, we recognise that a fair way back. Essentially, the business um cheer company we evolved through that period we uh, formed a brand called fancy plants we went from taking our chilled products which were cheer pods into the fancy plants brands we've been doing chilled cheer puddings across coals and woolies and independence in australia for the last four or five years um we also started doing products like rice puddings coconut based products we've just launched a range of favor bean products which are high protein plant-based products so you know we were pretty aware and I had our eyes pretty open to what was happening in the market and sort of pivoted away a little bit from the commodity space and more into the value-added and uh, ready-to-eat consumer market. That is John Foss, who's the founder and chief executive of The Chair Company, speaking to Alice Marshall there in Kununurra. Will we ever see chair grown commercially in the Northern Territory? I've just found an old story that I did in 2014 the headline reads, Cheer Company Expands Into the Northern Territory. So back in 2014, that company did a commercial size trial in the Douglas Daly region. John Foss at the time telling the Country Hour that the crop grew well and that the yields were positive. And in that same year, 
a separate independent trial of chia was conducted on a farm near Ali Karung, and it went pretty well uh, as well. So there was chia trialled in the Northern Territory about a decade ago. We haven't seen it since. Maybe, just maybe, it's also due for a comeback. Uh, That's it for today's Country Hour. Hope you can join us tomorrow. We will be bringing you more stories from that Bush Foods Conference that has been held in Darwin. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon and keep it rural.